All right. Thanks for listening to the Park Hills podcast. This is going to be about Revelation 6 through 8. I've got Pastor Rich with us here. We're going to chat through some of the things that we didn't get a chance to stick into the sermon. If you need any more information uh, on Park Hills, we'd love for you to go to parkhillschurch.com. There's tons of sermons and other podcast opportunities and things there. So head there. We're trying to create content for you. Uh, but otherwise, listen to this. Revelation six to eight, you know, really it's it's six one through eight five, right? We're gonna we we cut a little chunk of it out. So, Rich, I thought you did an awesome job of just breaking this passage down, trying to fit a lot into as little time as you possibly could. But even with that, there's a ton that spills over, right? Yeah, there. When you start studying this passage, um, any one of the times where you start to say, and then a seal is opened, you could probably spend. Well, decades, and I think people probably have, trying to figure out what's going on there. But one of the things that we were talking about as we were in our sermon team uh, looking at this message is that we're not really sure that those details are core to what the message is um, really being presented here by John. They're fantastic things to think about, fantastic things to to wonder what is going on here or, or when will that happen but I think we could get wrapped up in those details and lose the main message uh, of these two chapters, primarily six and seven, and that this idea of those messages carry through the rest of the scripture. So, made really it made it somewhat easy to go. We th- these are the points we need to focus on, and this idea of there are going to be two groups of individuals when all is said and done, and that was why I focused really on that who can stand uh, topic. The 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 contrast between six and seven. Yeah, we find that, you know, the big fancy word we would use here when you're studying God's word is, is a hermeneutic. And we would say that a, a hermeneutic that focuses on details that we aren't given is probably not as helpful as some might think it's, it is. Instead, we would rather focus on the details that we are given and what that actually means, because it's easy for us to look into texts like this and say, well, you know, I could imagine two years from now this thing happening and that totally being a fulfillment of this seal being being broken. But we might not have that seal broken for another thousand years, another 2,000 years. So we might imagine it from our context. But if you were the uh, back to the first century church that we've talked about a few times already in this podcast, if you're in the first century church and you read this and you go, oh, that seal could be broken next year, they've been waiting 2,000 years. They, they would never would have imagined that what our world looks and feels like today would be what they were writing toward. So we kind of need to hold that balance in place of it's written for the first century church to make sense. So it makes sense to them, but it also makes sense to us, but it doesn't necessarily need to only make sense to us. It needs to make sense to every generation beyond us all the way until the end of time. And I thought one of the great things you said was we're one day closer to the end than we were yesterday, which is so stinking true. And I don't think we think about it that way. We're just so convinced this is us. This is right now. It could be, but it's not necessarily. And so if we focus on the details of this is how it's going to happen exactly, 
you know, when you, this is when you start getting helicopters and things in the seals, maybe, I mean, but, but we also might be talking about a flying machine that hasn't been developed yet, or we could be talking about a spiritual being that doesn't, we can't even fathom what it looks like or that it even necessarily exists, but God is going to use it to enact judgment upon people. Yeah. And it seems like every generation could point to some seminal event that was occurring uh, in their context. And they would say, this is clearly it. I'm certain uh, if you go back, which is pertinent to today's conversation, towards the end of World War I, where you had literally like 20 million people perished in that war. And right at the end of it came a thing called the Spanish flu that was just wiping out millions of people around the world. It would have been so easy at that point to say, this is clearly the end. And yet then there was peace and a pause. And then World War II comes. And and you can go back in literature, you could see people were making these, this is it, this is it. And prior to that, you had the Black Plague and the Dark Ages. And you can just roll back. And so I think that's why we have to be really careful of rather than applying it to our current context and times, think about really what is the message that we're, that John was trying to relay to his original readers. And that is, there is going to be some really difficult things coming and we have to be ready. And I think that's the main focus of this passage. And, it, and it's interesting though, our, our natural tendency, especially for those of us who live in the, the Western educated world, is that we want facts, details, and timelines. I want to know exactly how long it's going to take. I want that roadmap. Uh, that's why I think people have, so, have, have just loved GPSs. I want to know exactly where I am, exactly where I'm going, and how long it's going to take. And hey, look, I beat it by two minutes. That's just kind of our mindset. I don't think that was the mindset of uh, of John or the original readers. And I don't believe that was even the mindset of uh, of God himself. Because as I mentioned in the message, when the disciples said, when is this going to happen? He said, you're going to see the signs. Never gave him a timeline. Right. And so we have to kind of back away from that our, our natural desire of like, I want to know exactly when. And even I would judge that in our hearts a little bit. Why do I need to know exactly when? For what purpose? Because if we're ready, if we're living our life the way Jesus has asked us to live our life, it's kind of irrelevant. Right. It really is. And I think a lot of people feel that way or look at the scripture, specifically Revelation. They look at it that way because they're afraid of being hoodwinked. So we sort of we sort of treat Revelation like as long as I know what's happening, then I won't fall for this or I won't I won't get the mark of the beast, you know, accidentally slapped on me and all of a sudden I'm or, or oh man, that that card that they put inside my my skin that allows me to buy food has totally like now I'm not going to get to heaven and this is ridiculous. We're going to get to all that. Like when we get to that, it'll start to make a little more sense and it's not that we're in I don't want to say that none of those things have anything to do with these things. We just don't know for sure. And so we're going to cautiously tiptoe around those things, but try to show you what the text is really saying and why that matters to us. And one of the elements that I think was really helpful for this passage that we talked through and and you spent a lot of time like digging into a little bit, but it never quite made the sermon because we didn't have time was there's a connection here to what was happening in the garden of Eden all the way back in Genesis. And so Flesh that out for us a little bit, and, and let's interact on that idea for a minute. Yeah, as you, as you start to think about um, what that provision was going to be um, for, or, or I should say what that provision will be for those who stand, when you start talking in chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, there's an intimacy, and we talked about that in the message, but there is this real provision for us as individuals. And so when you bounce back to that garden— in Genesis chapter 1, everything was created. 
There was his presence was there. There was an order to it. Then you end up getting to Genesis chapter 3, and you realize, wow, as human beings, we really messed this up. God gave us clear direction of what we should do and shouldn't do. And even that one thing that he said, I don't want you to do, you should not eat from this fruit. We had access to everything else he had given. And that was the one thing we were drawn to. As a result of that, then, as we know, sin entered the world and has been prevalent ever since. But that judgment that he proclaimed was that I'm literally taking these things from you. You're going to have to work for your food. You're going to be underneath the sun. You're going to be... Um, the challenged by the environment that, that is around you, not just the sinful acts that we, con, con, we would consider sin. So in that context, you almost can realize that sin actually impacted the way we relate to the natural world. Mm-hmm. And yet all that gets restored at the end for those that are able to be in the presence of the Lord. We go right back to that provision again. And I think we have to you know, process that a little bit of, that Genesis is not disconnected from Revelation. Mm-mm. It's also not disconnected from the Psalms or the Proverbs or the Gospels or the Prophets. It is foundational. And what we're seeing here at Revelation is, and I almost consider it the beginning of the end that never ends. So Revelation is that unveiling and that, and that understanding that these are the things that are going to be happening. It's going to take us back to a place where we should have been and we'll be with him in the presence again. And at that point, it never ends. And that's a pretty cool thing to think about. But you can then frame our time on this earth, our physical time that we've been given on this earth, as a short time period, temporary, and there's so much more coming. It's going back to the Garden of Eden in one aspect, and yet going beyond the Garden of Eden if we think about eternity. Which is an idea that we're going to flesh out a lot down the final stretch. When we get to Revelation 19 and on, trust me, this is going to be the, the continual theme that's just going to keep popping up. Like, how is God restoring things? But in order for him to restore things, it's got to get made clean first. And I don't think we think about it from that perspective. I think a lot of, even my, a lot of my non-Christian friends or even my, some of my atheist friends who interact with me on the Bible, which is so ironic because it's like they don't, they don't even believe it, but they're talking to me about it. They would say things like, well, God could just be nice and not do this. And I'm going, but you don't believe in him. So you don't understand that it's actually your disbelief or your lack of wanting to follow him that actually needs to be dealt with. And the fact that he needs to sort of prove not only that I am real, which he's going to do through even the seals, that's part of what's happening. But another part of it is he needs to clean the mess up. And I don't know about you, but I've never cleaned a mess up without actually doing something to clean it up, right? So... He, he uses individuals, these, these four horsemen and, and, and the other parts of the seals, to accomplish purposes that begin the process of re- restoration. And I think we think of it as retributive, that God is just wiping everything out because he's a jerk and I can't believe he, God would do this. But there's no point in the scriptures where God breaks free from his nature, which is God is a God of restoration. So even when he brings judgment upon the Israelites in 722 BC or 586 BC, he even says in Isaiah and other places, I am doing this not because I hate you. It's because I love you, but I've got to fix the problem in order for us to move to the next step. And it's going to hurt. So repent now and do this. And we've been asking people to repent for 2000 years. I mean, since the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've been asking folks to consider that reality that Jesus Christ is King. He's the one in charge and we need to repent and start to follow him 
And instead, we have mass chaos everywhere. And so when God starts to make things right and finally let the judgment fall, which is what happens in this, these chapters, people are going to be like, why now? And it's like, well, we've given you 2,000 years. Like you could have gone back any point. And so in one sense, the world's going to mourn this and the rest of us are going to not, I don't know about celebrate because I, I think I'm going to have a, if, I, if we're around, I'm going to have a deep lament about what's happening, but I'm also going to be finally, Lord Jesus, come do your thing. And so one of the, the ideas that you kind of just poked at in the sermon, and I, I want to spell this out a little bit, you said something along the lines of, we're talking like 2.2 billion people passing away in in short period of time. And you and I love that you pointed out, this isn't COVID. This is something way bigger right. than that. Just let's, let's do a little thought experiment. What does that look like? So I, I love math and science um, and economics. I mentioned that in the message. You know, I love crunching numbers, and you guys know you pick on me because I love my spreadsheets. We love so. making fun of you for that, yes. yes. Um, and I was just trying to get my head wrapped around 2 billion people. What do you do with 2 billion people who pass away? And that's if it happens now. And you mentioned if we go 10 years from now, 100 years from now, two and a quarter billion, it gets bigger and bigger billion, and bigger, yeah. four billion people. So I, I was, I was, I had some time, I spent, you know, I spent some time on the bike and I was on the bike and I was like going, Hey, I should probably do some math as I was doing this. And I came back and did some math. So I'm like, what would it actually take to get to bury 2 billion people based on just, you know, the, the numbers that funeral directors and, and, um, cemetery owners use it would be about 1,700 square miles, Whoa. which is roughly the size of the state of Delaware, if everybody was stacked just once across, taking an entire state, every inch of a state, and just covering it, or just that amount of land, is unbelievable. Yeah. And those are people that perish just in that seal. And, and it's, it's terrible the amount of death that is going to be experienced when this happens. It's going to be of a, of a, a site that we've never seen. And, and in the past, you know, we've seen even, even recently you've seen where there have been things called mass graves where they just dig a big pit. It's, it's a terrible thing because they can't get everyone buried properly. and they put them. It is going to be an atrocity um, that is beyond measure. And again, that doesn't even count for the previous seal where it says the peace is removed from the earth and we as human beings just start killing each other because of our pride and our envy and our arrogance and, and our hatred towards other people. Um, death is going to be everywhere. And yet it still takes more time for people to realize what's going on. Because it's not until we get to that sixth seal that now the heavens and the earth and the sun are painted. They look completely different that people are like, okay, now we're in the face of God, and mm. I can't stand. So you think about that in context. We're actually seeing, we see that we're going to see that death. We're going to see the the chaos that's going to be there. But it's not until that that sixth seal that we actually come to the realization that there's things that, that are that are outside of this world, and they start to recognize that it's it's the it's God who's who's doing this. The Lamb is there and, and bringing judgment, and they can't stand. Which is crazy because going back to what you just said about the garden a few minutes ago, that's what God promised. When you eat this fruit, you will surely die. And I've always taught students over the years, I, I wonder if Adam kind of waited to see what that looked like. If he was just, because he was standing right next to Eve, did he wait to see if she died and she didn't? And then he goes, well, I guess I can eat it too. And I've always 
pictured him as sort of this weakling should have stepped up for his wife, which I think is why we have all these commands in scripture that say that. But God said, you're surely going to die. So I see it as a huge sign of mercy that God chose to let us live as long as it is until this happens. And I know that as a Christian, I can sit in God's mercy and go, man, you're you are too good to us letting us go this long. But to all the non-Christians, they would go, I can't believe God's letting this many people die. And which is, I think, part of the discussion that's going to happen worldwide. It's just, I can't believe that that a good God could exist if this many people are dying randomly for these reasons. And it's like, we were promised in the beginning that this is what's going to happen, and we just chose not to believe it. Yeah, I think in, in one of the questions that, that we could we could ask is, because it's very likely, we know human nature enough that <laughs> when all these people are dying, we're going to blame one another, we're going to blame this particular people group, we're going to blame that country, we're going to blame economic um, disparity. We're going to have all these reasons why um, these things are happening. Because, But there's a question is, why wouldn't people have repented before? Mm-hmm. And I think it comes down to, and this I, I couldn't touch, even get close to it. I'm sure we'll talk about it. But if you take a look, there's a there's this issue of pride. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of underlying as I was talking about it, where we think that politics is going to fix it. It's all man-centric. The pride of man is that we think we're going to be able to fix this, and, it, and we can't. And you take, compare that, and you read the detail in 7, and for any individual to, to willingly throw themselves at the feet of another individual, in this case, it's it's God, it's it's Jesus, requires an intense and deep humility and understanding of their own position versus his position. And I think that becomes one of these great separators. Because you could say, how could a loving God, again, put all these people through all these terrible things? It's pride. We often, at times, we ask for it. And so I think as we read through these passages, we could get trapped into this, oh, see, God is not good. But all he's asking for is recognize who he is. And once we come to that understanding and recognition, it's like, yeah, we were so messed up. And we have complete access. That's really the ask that he's making, is recognize who he is, follow him, listen, and he's good, and he will provide everything we need. Um, Yet pride is going to continue to have people say they would rather have rocks pour on their head than to humbly fall before Jesus. Which, as you ended the sermon... You know, your, your real ending was so powerful because you, you came out after the sermon was done and we sang our final song. And then you read the first five verses of eight and you did this great moment where you left it silent and just really awkward. And I, the second time I heard it, I actually started crying. I couldn't stop myself just thinking about the idea of all of heaven, not worshiping for a period of time. And, and, and I say that because we hear worship meaning song, his silence or that their silence, listening to like seeing God's goodness or, or his judgment about to come, whatever, however you want to word that or look at that, that silence means they were worshiping in a different way. So powerful that they just don't know what to say and they know what's coming, or at least they have some inkling of the seven seals got opened. What does this mean? Yeah. I just couldn't contain myself. It was, it was overwhelming. And I had heard the sermon already twice that day. And the second time I'm just sitting here going, oh my goodness, I, I can't imagine heaven not praising him with their voice, but praising him with silence because they are so in awe of what's about to take place, which we're going to get to in the weeks ahead. So one of the real quick comments that, that, that you threw down here was, you know, that the tribe of Dan isn't actually in the 12 tribes. 
uh, we talked about this briefly in sermon team, but the tribe of Dan was sort of wiped out because they just, they didn't set up shop where they were supposed to. They decided to go somewhere else and they get wiped out. They're one of the first ones to get wiped out. So there's tons of discussion about this and a number of commentaries. None of them are super compelling to me, but I think what's interesting is, uh, Dan isn't included in that, but yet Joseph is, which he wasn't in the original because they used the word Ephraim, which is one of his sons, and they bring Manasseh into this as well. And so the 12 tribes of Israel in, in Revelation 7 are actually uh, different than you would remember the 12 tribes being. And the, some have said there's a great significance to it. We'll leave that to you to go find, you know, go to Blue Letter Bible and read some articles on it or... Um, you know, we talk about this a little bit in, in the other podcast that we did called the Yamcast. We, as we go through judges, we get to the spot where we talk about Dan and there's some famous Danites like Samson's one. And, uh, well, he's the most famous. So some of that you can, you can play with that. But I think one of the, the big things that you pointed out in the beginning, and I, I want you to just say it one more time, very succinctly like you did on the thing, you want us to focus our attention in revelation somewhere else. And so what does that look like? I think as believers, what we need to focus on is that there are, uh, there's going to be a great divide in people. It's not going to be political. It's not going to be economic. It's not going to be racial. It's simply those that believe and those that do not, and what the eternal consequences are for those. And this is we're going to be we're seeing this. It's going to be through the rest of Revelation. And so, as believers in this in the time that we are right now, I think our message needs to be: there is going to be a judgment coming. And we should act that way with expediency to proclaim the name of Christ, regardless of the personal cost to us. Because the other thing we didn't even touch on here is that those that are persecuted for the name of Jesus are held to a place of honor. That's where our focus needs to be. We can walk through this world completely unafraid of what's going to happen in our short number of years on this earth. And we need to proclaim his name so that others can see who God really is. They can see this love. They can see this intimacy that he has offered to us and help them to make that, um, that leap from pride to humility so that they can stand in the presence with the lamb shoulder to shoulder with the, with the multitude. That's a really good word. And, and what we're saying there is we don't want you running around proclaiming God's judgment is coming, although that might work for some. But we want you to point out God's goodness and the fact that he hasn't done this yet is probably a little bit more compelling argument for us to use. Although judgment works for some folks. Yeah, and we, could, we could make the list of all the reasons why we deserve it, but maybe that's not the way to start the uh, discussion. So between these sermons and even this podcast, we are not creating a commentary of revelation. We don't have time to do that. We're not going through every verse as in depth as you'd like. And even this, we're trying to just pull up some of the pieces that we didn't have a chance to use that we think would be helpful to you. But if you look, you know, if you're listening to this and you're looking around at Revelation and you're thinking, man, I wish they would cover this or this or this, or here's a huge question that I would love answered by our staff, just shoot us an email. Uh, you can find that on the website, go to parkhillschurch.com, email one of us pastors, let us know the question you'd love to have us answer. I can't promise we'll get to all of them, but we are here for you. We're wanting you to help understand this book, and we're hoping this podcast becomes something that we just do for every sermon series from here on out. So again, uh, email us. Otherwise, check out parkhillschurch.com for more info. And thanks for listening to this episode, and we'll be looking forward to next week. Mm-hmm.